This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, historian Heather Ann Thompson discusses her new book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us about some big changes at Barnes & Noble. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen BookScan. I may just jump in nonfiction. Right All right. So we've got a new number one that is not about politics. And this is from Zondervan. It's called Present Over Perfect, Leaving Behind Frantic for a Simpler, More Soulful Way of Living. So a little bit of calm to the turmoil of politics. This is by Sean and Nyquist. We say in our review, returning to the theme of decluttering everyday life and concentrating what is truly important, Nyquist weaves together a series of essays concerning her personal experiences overcoming a life overwrought with busyness, stress, and feelings of inadequacy. We say this latest book is her most satisfying blend of mindfulness, scripture, and self-help to date, offering readers the blueprint for a life lived in the real instead of the ideal. So that's it. That's it. Number one. Jumping ahead to number 11 uh, is Powerhouse, the untold story of Hollywood's creative artist agency. We don't have a review of this, but this is a book that kind of digs deep into this ever-powerful talent agency uh, Mm -hmm. in Hollywood. It covers everything from uh, all kinds of performance. So uh, this is written by uh, James Andrew Miller, and he's the the, uh, uh, co-author of uh, Live from New York, and those guys have all the fun, uh, other uh, books on the entertainment industry. So that's at number 11. Uh, Number 13, we have a health book. It's called Run Fast, Eat Slow, Nourishing Recipe. Piece for Athletes by Charlene Finnegan. Uh, Charlene's a marathoner and four-time Olympian, and it's written with Elise Kopecki, uh, who's the who's a chef, and this is uh, providing, I guess, nourishment and recipes for the athletes or for those who just want to be healthy and active. Next at number fourteen, we have Clinton Cash, a graphic novel by Chuck. Dixon. We don't have a review of this. Uh, this is about, quote unquote, the, the Clinton scams, and it's based on the number two bestseller called Clinton Cash by Peter Schweitzer. Uh, so that's at number 14, a graphic novel. And then at number 18, we have a star review, Adnan Story, uh, The Search for Truth and Justice After Quote Unquote Serial by Rabia Chowdhury. This is at number 18, and the review says, launched into the collective consciousness by the podcast Serial, the investigation into Adnan Syed's uh, involvement in the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend continues to fascinate in this gripping account from the attorney, Chaudhry, uh, who's a friend of Syed's family. 
family. We say uh, Chaudhry's version of the story of, quote-unquote, justice, bigotry, faith, community, devastation, healing, and hope, unquote, end quote, points to an intentional, systematic framing of Siad by investigators, allegations that will surely spark controversy as his legal ordeal continues. And finally, at number 24, by Andy Dorfman, who's the finalist for season 18 of The Bachelor. The title of the book, It's Not Okay, Turning Heartbreak into Happily Never After. And that's what we have on nonfiction. Well, on the fiction list, um, we have new number three, Catherine Coulter's Insidious. This is the 20th book uh, in her FBI thriller series. Uh, it's got a great cover with a carnivorous plant on it. You, oh, right. you, you know, some interesting things are going to happen there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and our review says that two complex cases propel this absorbing thriller, which features two married FBI agents, Dylan and Lacey. And one of them, uh, there's a businesswoman who's 86 and still running her huge family business. And she thinks that she's being poisoned. Uh, and meanwhile, a serial killer out of Los Angeles breaks pattern and murders a young actress in Las Vegas. Uh, but the MO is identical to four previous murders of young up and coming Hollywood actresses. So uh, there's plenty going on. Body counts are rising. And uh, our review says that Coulter keeps the two plot lines equally engaging and keeps the reader guessing all the way to the satisfying resolution. So that's number three. At number eight, uh, we have the new Philippa Gregory, Three Sisters, Three Queens. This is technically the second book chronologically in her Tudor Court series, um, but uh, readers will be familiar with the ones that come chronologically before and after it. Um, the first one is The Other Boleyn Girl, which, uh, of course, uh, was a huge, huge bestseller, and I believe there was a movie made out of it. And then the first book chronologically is The Constant Princess, mm -hmm. so this follows on the heels of that. We don't have a review of it, but uh, Gregory's obviously very well known as a, a historical fiction author, um, very good at getting people interested in the Tudor period of history, which is all the rage. So I'm sure that uh, students of history and fans of her writing will definitely want to grab this one. At number 11, we have Family Tree by Susan Wiggs. Uh, Wiggs is a women's fiction author, romance author. This is definitely more on the women's fiction side. Uh, and uh, again, we don't have a review, but um, the, the book focuses on a woman who's uh, it ends up in a year-long coma. And when she wakes up, of course, her life is entirely different from the wonderful success that she had before. And so she's she's grieving. She's struggling to come to terms with having been comatose for an entire year. And uh, she slowly needs to emerge back into the world. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's one of those feel-good books. And uh, I know we've talked about the beach reads with the pictures of beaches on them. This one has autumn leaves. So, oh, I, so we're getting to it. I think the season, <laughs> the season is turning. Uh, and so we need these warm-hearted books to right. keep us company on cooler nights, which hopefully are coming soon, hopefully. Down at number 16, we have Behind Closed Doors by B.A. Paris. Uh, this is a debut novel. Paris is a British author, and uh, our review says the book is gripping. It's about newlyweds Grace and Jack Angel, who seem to lead a perfect life, but appearances can be deceiving. In addition to being a handsome, successful attorney, Jack is also a sadistic psychopath, and he's keeping Grace a prisoner. Uh, we say that Jack's mustache-twirling monologues occasionally sap the story of tension and believability, but Grace's terror is contagious, and impending peril creates a ticking clock. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a particularly intense one. 
And finally, at number 21, we have Another Brooklyn by Jacqueline Woodson, who will be our guest on PW Radio next week. I'm very excited. Looking forward to talking with her. And uh, this is her first adult novel in 20 years. Uh, she won the National Book Award for her last book, Brown Girl Dreaming, and uh, has been in in the news recently just uh, doing some, some wonderful right. work. And uh, we gave this a starred review. It said that Woodson combines grit and beauty in a series of stunning vignettes, painting a vivid mural of what it was like to grow up African-American in Brooklyn during the 1970s. Right. And with dreams as varied as their conflicts, young women confront dangers lurking on the streets, discover first love, and pave paths that will eventually lead them in different directions. So um, this is a sort of intense, beautiful, sensory book that really takes you to the streets of Brooklyn in the wow, 70s. Great. Um, and uh, I'm so, so excited that I'm going to get to chat with her about that. Great. And I'll be on vacation. So I'm sure it's going to be a great talk that I'll miss. You, you can tune in. <laughs> I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. And next up, Heather Ann Thompson tells us about the legacy of events at Attica Prison 45 years ago. We'll be right back. I'm Ed Yong, author of I Contain Multitudes, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Heather Ann Thompson on the line. Her new book is Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. Hello, Heather. So glad you could join us. Great to be here. So this is the 45th anniversary of the 1971 Attica Prison Uprising, uh, included nearly 1,300 prisoners. Tell us first, what what brought this about? Well, um, basically, it was the 1960s. There was a great deal of civil rights activism around the country, but including in prisons. And um, Attica was one of many different prison protests in this time period, but it was particularly noteworthy because the Attica prisoners had very much tried to first work through the system, tried to write letters, tried to get their needs expressed, um, as they said, in a very democratic fashion. And really, they felt that they got nowhere. And so eventually, frustration boiled over, and there was an all-out prison rebellion, uh, as you said, nearly 1,300 prisoners, and over four days with intense negotiations with the uh, state and with observers on hand to help with those negotiations and with the media actually in the yard uh, documenting uh, this prison protest for the entire world. So tell us about what the demands were. What was happening in the prison at this time? Well, there were many different things going on uh, because it was the 60s. On the one hand, there were uh, great, there was a great deal of interest in questions of racial justice, um, bringing greater racial equality even behind bars so that, for example, black prisoners, Puerto Rican prisoners would be treated the same way that white prisoners. Uh, but much more practically, there were issues such as insufficient food and, um, you know, one roll of toilet paper for the entire month and uh, an inability to have clear parole rules. 
so that you never quite knew how you could ever get out on good behavior or how you could even manage day to day because the rules were often so capricious. And medical care, for example, was abominable. So there were every number of issues from the abstract uh, and deeply meaningful racial justice issues uh, to the very direct and practical day-to-day living condition issues. So a lot of these issues are still concerns today. Um, you, you talk about the legacy of this uprising. To what extent did it influence and shape the prison system um, in the past 45 years? Well, one of the greatest ironies of Attica is that its legacy is really, uh, in some ways, it's very contradictory. On the one hand, uh, Attica was one of the most important human rights uh, rebellions of our generation of our of our uh, 20th century history. And yet, it also generated extraordinary backlash. And I think readers, if they're able to really dig into this book, will see that that was deeply ironic. Um, one of the things that happens after Attica is that although the prisoners were very, uh, very orderly, very democratic, protected the hostages, negotiated in good faith with the state, the state came in with guns blazing and frankly, then went to the nation and said numerous falsehoods. Uh, they said that the prisoners had killed the hostages, which wasn't true. It had been state troopers. Um, they chronicled all kinds of abuses that the prisoners had allegedly committed on uh, hostages that just hadn't, hadn't happened. And so in many respects, the way that Attica was spun had a devastating uh, impact on prisoner rights and even civil rights. Um, Americans very quickly began to think of these prisoners not as justified rebels, but as, you know, animals, as barbaric animals. And so there was an enormous backlash to Attica at the same time that it also ushered in, at least for a moment, some really important prison reforms. So I want to talk a little bit about those four days of riots. Who were the key players? Who were the key people in in this involved? And who were the prisoners in Attica? Well, the prisoners were a real mixed bag. I think people would assume, because we say the word Attica today, that this is the the hardest of the hardened criminals and, um, you know, the worst of the worst in society. But interestingly, um, there was all manner of people in Attica. There were really young kids in Attica, you know, 19-year-olds, 18-year-olds who were there on mere parole violations. There were people there on serious uh, criminal offenses. But there were black prisoners, white prisoners, Puerto Rican prisoners, Spanish-speaking prisoners. It was an incredibly diverse group, actually. And that is one of the things that made this uprising so um, so powerful, because prisoners that might have normally been divided on racial lines or, or um, barriers of language were, in fact, coming together over some pretty fundamental human rights questions that uh, that cause unity in ways that I think deeply surprise the state. So how did the prisoners overtake the overtake Attica? Well, what happens originally is uh, a quite uh, ordinary uh, in the sense that there was often, you know, conflicts in prison. There was a there was a clash that had happened in the in one of the recreation yards uh, the night before what we will come to know as the Attica uprising when it happens. And Frankly, the uh, this ordinary, relatively ordinary incident between a, a prisoner and a guard turns very extraordinary when the prisoner decides to fight back. He actually strikes the guard. 
And that night when they uh, go back to their cells and the state makes the decision that they're going to clamp down particularly hard on those prisoners. And the way that they do that is the next day when they go down to breakfast, they did make the decision, by the way, not telling their own corrections officers that they're going to do this, their own corrections officers who are in charge of these guys going to breakfast, that they're not going to be allowed to go to breakfast. That or, I'm sorry, to the rec area, that they're going to send them right back to their cells. Well, in the confusion and the utter confusion of locking them into this hallway, the prisoners are panicking. They think they're being attacked by the guards in retaliation for the night before. The guards are panicking because they have no idea why the guard, why the doors are locked. And in this utter, utter confusion, people start arming themselves with anything they can find, and the riot begins. But the riot then quickly spreads and eventually within maybe four or five hours becomes not a riot, but an actual rebellion. Um, they go to the yard. They go to one place where everyone can gather for safety, for organization. And they begin this remarkable process of electing um, leaders to represent each of the cell blocks you know, creating a, a, a sort of a governing board that will make the decisions, creating a, a medical area, um, a food area, and um, and also protecting the hostages because they had taken several hostages so that the uh, state would have to negotiate with them. And they surrounded those hostages with a double line of prisoners sort of facing outwards to make sure that no one, no harm would come to them. And thus began, again, one of the most extraordinary, um, I think, episodes of self-government and, and, and real civil rights organization that quite took the state of New York by surprise. I can only imagine. So the state decided that the way to, to deal with this, I mean, there, there were a few days of negotiation, but eventually the state just said, um, that's it. We're, we're going to go in and take the prison back by force. So what happened then? Well, I mean, that's one of the most uh, interesting parts of the Attica story, because by the time that negotiations had really gotten underway, the entire world was watching. There were uh, many observers in the prison, some of whom had been invited by the prisoners, some the state had asked to come, who were acting as a go-between, the prisoners and the state. And they were really pushing for the state to um, agree to these, again, very quite basic um, human rights demands. And the state agreed to almost all of them, but the most important, which was that the prisoners wanted amnesty for having rebelled, criminal amnesty, but also um, really they wanted no retaliation uh, should they surrender because there'd been a long history when prisoners uh, surrendered of really intensive retribution on the part of the guards and the state. And this on this one matter, the state would not budge. And instead, uh, decided that they were going to go in with force. And the reason why this is important is that they very deliberately, I found in my research, very deliberately did not indicate to the prisoners that if they didn't give up on that morning of the 13th, that they were going to be attacked. And indeed, I found uh, records indicating that the opposite was true. They were specifically told not to make it an ultimatum. In other words, the prisoners were to be lulled into thinking that uh, negotiations were still in, in process. And so when the state goes in, it is... Um, you know, to the terror and shock and surprise of prisoners and hostages alike. The hostages had gone on the cameras and said to Rockefeller, you know, help these guys. 
um, negotiate with them. Whatever you do, you know, don't retake this prison. Um, the the observers had said to Rockefeller, if you come in, it's going to be a massacre because they had seen, they had looked at all of these troopers milling outside for days and days without any sleep, um, getting angrier and angrier, passing out weapons indiscriminately. So pretty much everybody knew that if the state went in, which it decided to do, that um, that it was going to be a bloodbath. And that's exactly what it was. So tell us about some more of the new information that you uncovered while you were doing your research. Well, I think first it's it's worth pointing out that doing the research on this alone was extremely difficult because even though Attica is a state prison and this is a state institution, one would think, for example, a state institution that all taxpayers, you know, uh, support that we would have some access to information about it. It was very difficult to get access to any information about Attica. For four decades, the state has made access to records very, very difficult, if not has outright sealed them. And so it took 13 years to uncover what had really happened. And the deeper I dug, uh, the more I understood why. Uh, in effect, uh, not only did they uh, spin a tale to the public that the prisoners had been warned when, in fact, there was no ultimatum given, um, they also very deliberately uh, knew that if they went in, they were going to kill hostages. Um, that was well known among the architects of the assault that hostages were going to die. And of course, for years, they denied that. They said that hostages had been, you know, an unexpected and an unfortunate um, outcome of this retaking um, hostage fatalities. Um, I, I quickly understood that one of the reasons we don't know as much as we need to about Attica is because from the moment the uh, the tear gas cleared over D yard. Uh, the state began scrambling to uh, get a narrative that they could all agree upon what had happened, who had done what. It was really a circling of the wagons uh, in Rockefeller's own pool house. Um, they had the state police who had actually been in charge of the retaking and the incredible bloodshed that resulted from it actually investigating the retaking. Um, actually on the ground doing the investigation. Um, and I found, you know, of course, that not surprisingly, statements were coerced and, and, uh, and photographs were missing. And eventually it became clear to me that there had really been an effort at all levels to protect the police rather than have them take responsibility for what had gone wrong in this retaking. So, the uh, in the retaking the aftermath of the retaking um it sounds like the one thing that they were holding off on or that 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 the state was holding off on was what ended up happening was the retaliation against the prisoners tell us what happened and and who was who was the 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 leader for the prisoners who who emerged as a leader well for the that's prisoners? an interesting, it's an interesting question because I think that the state very much wanted to portray Attica as having been a conspiracy in fact that there had been some left wing black power leaders that had made Attica happen and as by the way as an indication of this when Attica ends they appoint 
um, the organized crime task force to be the body that investigated the rebellion. Again, Rockefeller was so convinced there had been some kind of conspiracy along the lines of, you know, a mafia conspiracy, uh, that that's the bureau of the government that was chosen to investigate it. But in fact, the leadership was quite organic. There were, again, people elected out of their various cell blocks. And ultimately, some of the most important prisoners that come to lead the 40-year fight for justice with the state um, weren't actually quite, they weren't political at all when Attica started. Some were, but a few weren't, like Frank Big Black Smith, someone who became political because of the state's brutality, because of what the state had done in the wake of Attica. And what the state did, and frankly, what the troopers were allowed to do, is one of those moments in American history that um, is shameful. I mean, it's one of the reasons, again, why we now understand the records have been sealed. The prisoners were um, stripped. They were beaten. They were herded into cells naked. Some of them had six bullet wounds, seven bullet wounds. They were they were tortured. They were threatened with Russian roulette. They were, um, the racial epithets were, um, thick through the night and the days and the weeks. And indeed, one of the most <laughs> striking, uh, indeed kind of powerful things about Attica is that at every step of the way, from the moment it ended, uh, till really, um, 2006, when, uh, the hostages finally had their, uh, moment of restitution with the state, for all of those years, every bureaucrat, um, from the lowest level workman's comp uh, person to the president of the United States to the Supreme Court of the United States, every bureaucrat, every politician, um, judges, um, everybody allowed these injustices to just go on and on and on and indeed denied that they had happened. Um, and so this is a David and Goliath story. This is a story of prisoners and hostages, sometimes together, um, you know, sometimes uh, working at cross purposes, sometimes working in concert that just never give up trying to be heard, trying to tell what really happened at Attica. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Heather Ann Thompson, author of Blood in the Water, who's telling us some amazing things about what happened at Attica Prison in 1971. So the prisoners took legal action against the state, and you said it took until 2006 for them to finally get anything like restitution? Well, there's there's two there's two groups who come out of Attica as victims, and one of them is the prisoners, and the other is the guards, those who've been taken hostage. And both groups had separate journeys to finally having a, some moment of justice, although I think all would say insufficient with the state. The prisoners, from the moment Attica ended, had tried to file civil suits, um, and they were largely told that they couldn't do anything until uh, the Attica, the criminal investigation at Attica had proceeded. And so that actual civil suit, a class action suit on behalf of the prisoners, 
does not uh, really get off the ground with any meaning until uh, the 80s. Uh, the trials don't happen till the 90s. And when that happens, the juries are so shocked, so horrified by what the prisoners have endured that they award staggering damages. And then in this 11th hour, those awards are overturned at a higher court. And ultimately, the prisoners have to settle with the state. That happens in 2000. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the guards have their own journey of trying to sue the state, and they are not able to, it turns out, because the state has really swindled them. It has persuaded the hostage widows, for example, to accept these meager checks to kind of tide them over without telling them that they had, quote unquote, elected a remedy mm. by cashing those checks. They could not sue the state. And so for them, it takes until the 2000s before they can even think of a new strategy, like how are they going to have restitution? And ultimately, and maybe perhaps deeply ironically, they are able to settle with the state themselves uh, after the prisoners have done so. In, in many respects, they're, they're able to shame the state into also giving them some financial compensation. Um, but it takes decades and at every step along the way, uh, state officials refuse to admit responsibility, even with the settlements. They've refused to apologize. They've refused to acknowledge what, in fact, happened. So uh, I'm just curious, what is the uh, – tell us the meaning behind the title, Blood in the Water. Well, the title came to me after reading through the testimonies of all of the prisoners who finally, finally got to tell the judge who was settling their case in, in 2000 their stories. He invited them, Judge Michael Kaleska, a really remarkable man, he invited them to his chambers uh, to put their stories on the record finally and, um, and just to talk. And one of them told him about the horrific day when the Troopers came in and were just shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting and, and everyone's diving for cover. And he has this quote where he basically says he looks up and it's raining and it's, it's the, the, the tear gas is hanging in the air. And, and he says, all I could see is blood in the water. That's all I could see. And it just really, that, that phrase just really stuck with me as really capturing, um, you know, just just what had happened, you know, the, the degree of trauma that had happened in that yard on that day that that nobody uh, knew for many years. And then when the prisoners and everyone tried to tell them, no one believed. And, you know, I think the story is about really putting front and center what happened that day. Yeah, that is a pretty powerful image. How did how did the book idea come to you? Well, uh, quite, quite uh, by accident, uh, only uh, I say that because I'm by training a, really a civil rights historian and a labor historian, and, and I'd always known about Attica as a, as a civil rights event, but, but had not really known much about prisons or had thought much about prisons. And so I decided that I wanted to do a book on Attica, having no idea um, what that meant, having no idea what that meant about finding records, having no idea how much collective trauma was still there, I mean, you know, interviewing people from no matter what walk of life and having them, you know, break down, uh, you know, and trying to trying to talk about this. And and so over the course of doing the book, I really became uh, interested in Attica as a civil rights story, but also in um, Attica as this really 
critically important moment in the nation where um, we are at a turning point. After Attica, we as a nation come to lock up more people than any other country on the globe. And I sort of intuited that, you know, Attica mattered to that and that, you know, major shift we made in American policy. And so I kind of then wanted to probe that as well, right, to rescue this story, but also to think through what that meant for our broader, broader policy shifts in, in the nation after 1971. So obviously, this is all very germane to recent events, current events. Um, what would you like people to learn from the story of Attica and from what happened after so that we can make sure we don't repeat the same mistakes? Uh, what a what a good question. Um, I think that there's two things. Uh, one has to do with um, our criminal justice system and prisons. I think that Attica shows us that that it is crucially important that that this nation, that really all nations, that that this nation pays very close attention to what goes on in the most closed spaces in our society, which are prisons. Um, that we treat people humanely. Um, that once someone is sentenced, that does not mean that they've lost their humanity. The story of Attica reminds us just how brutally people can act when they are left unchecked. And so Attica is a story about um, human beings who, no matter what the odds and no matter how abandoned and no matter how tortured uh, and no matter how scarred, uh, never give up. I mean, this is about this irrepressible fight for humanity and to be treated like human beings. And I hope, you know, I guess I hope that we, we sort of take that away. And the other is, uh, perhaps a bit of a, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a more, uh, darker message, which is that we must really think about what our justice system means in terms of whether there is, in fact, equal justice under the law. Today, we are, faced once again with all of these episodes of um, police killing unarmed citizens. And, you know, uh, so rarely do those uh, members of law enforcement uh, ever get indicted. And, and, and when they are rarely indicted, so rarely are they ever convicted. And I think most citizens look at that and say, well, that must be because they didn't do anything wrong or there was no evidence. And I think what Attica's Saga. I mean, it's just the the, the, the level of um, the level of protection, the the level of injustice that goes on throughout the process of trying to bring law enforcement to to to, um, to take responsibility in Attica shows us that we need to be cynical. You know, we need to we need to hold law enforcement to the same standards of law as everybody else um, to ensure that there really is equal justice under the law. So I think that's another another message, another another important contemporary lesson. So you were, as you'd mentioned, the author of two other books on social issues. The most recent was Speaking Out, Protest and Activism in the 1960s and 70s. So the the 70s seemed to be a, a rich ground for you. Yes, I think that we have often assumed that uh, the civil rights era was the 50s and the 60s, which it certainly was. But we're coming to learn that the 70s, rather than being that decade that we, I think, have long assumed to be about backlash and conservatism and, you know, all of the, the things that will bring us into the 80s. I mean, there was a great deal of important civil rights activism in the 70s. Uh, Attica, Kent State, uh, you know, Wounded Knee 
and numerous other episodes that we need to really reexamine because there's deep irony in the decade of the 70s. Somehow in this decade, when so many, so many people are protesting, um, that we take a message from that, which is so, so backward, you know, uh, some of the greatest episodes of violence in this period is state violence, right? Um, at Kent State, at Attica, at Wounded Knee. And yet the nation takes the lesson from that, that participatory democracy is dangerous, that the people are dangerous, and that we need to have stronger law enforcement and stronger laws. It's It's all very, very ironic. And I think it just really is a moment when we need to unpack that and figure out what happened. How was it that that's the message we took from Attica or any of those other episodes? And your first book was Who's Detroit? Politics, Labor, and Race in a Modern American City. Um, you're a Detroit native. What was it like you know, sort of digging into that history? Well, that's another one of those really interesting moments in the 70s. Uh, the Detroit story is also a civil rights story of uh, a large portion of the population, the, the the black Detroiters who had moved from the South to the North, wanting equal justice under the law in Detroit, wanting an end to police brutality, wanting uh, to be uh, hired equally and educated equally. And so Detroit also has a big rebellion. Uh, the Detroit rebellion, that anniversary is next year, uh, the 50th of you know, wanting equal say in the city. And uh, I wanted to understand that. I was a Detroiter who lived in the city and wanted to understand how in the world had Detroit been this place that um, was so contested. And then because African-Americans did get uh, some equality and did, in fact, elect a black mayor, that uh, that it was then abandoned by white Detroiters. So I wanted to really understand, again, that same kind of example of rebellion, but then backlash rebellion, but then uh, something terrible following for the city in this case. And now you're teaching at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. How do your students react to this history? Are they familiar with it? Does it shock them? Well, certainly the Detroit history for Michiganders is, uh, is more familiar, but I think to this day, most students, whether you're talking about Attica or whether you're talking about uh, rebellions like in Detroit in 67 or Philly in 64, uh, students are really uh, surprised when they actually learn what the issues were that led to them, when they learn the amount of violence that accompanied them was not driven by the crazy radicals in the street, uh, that, that they are very surprised that the narratives that they have heard, to the extent they do know about it, uh, they don't know what really happened. So when you, um, when you bring this history out, uh, and you kind of, uh, dispel the, the myths, uh, what do the students take away from that? Do you see them getting more politically engaged or do they just sort of need to go away and think about it for a bit? <laughs> oh, I think both. I mean, uh, one of the things about telling Attica, and I think that, you know, readers will experience this as well. It's a, uh, it's a, it's, it's traumatic reading it. It's traumatic reckoning with it. Um, and it does take people a while to process all of it. But I do think that young people are, um, you know, they, they do understand the fundamental principles that the nation wants to, uh, hold dear, which is, you know, equal justice under the law and, and treating people as human beings. And these kinds of basic premises tend to uh, resonate with our young people, thank goodness. And I think that it does tend to lead them to demand 
um, you know, accountability. Um, and certainly, I mean, I also teach uh, in a department of African-American studies. And, and I have to say, of course, for for black students, there is, um, you know, this is all so resonant. This is all so deeply familiar that, um, you know, it, it generates a great deal of both, um, you know, uh, activism, but also kind of despair because it is quite quite disheartening when uh, young people understand how deeply rigged <laughs> the system is uh, against them when it comes to justice under the law. We've been talking with Heather Ann Thompson. You can find her book, Blood in the Water, in stores right now. Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for talking. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about BNN ousting its CEO, so stay tuned. Yo, yo, what's up? I'm Daryl McDaniels, the author of 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Rah. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about the shakeup at Barnes & Noble. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good. How are you? Not too bad. So, uh, so news today? Yeah, quite a quite a shock actually. Came out, uh, you know, Tuesday afternoon, late in the day, that Ron Bois, who had been CEO of Barnes and Noble since uh, only last September, was being dismissed by the board, who just said that he was not the right fit for the company. Wow, that seems. A short term and things must not have looked good. I mean, was it the numbers? Was it quarter numbers or was it? No, that's what has people both a little perplexed and, you know, stunned at, at the news. There was really no hints that anything was wrong. Uh, their, their year end numbers for the last fiscal year, which ended in April, you know, sales were down a little and they lost a little bit of money, but it really wasn't out of line with everything that they expected. I mean, the turnaround plan. It seems to be, you know, kind of creaking along, but at least heading in the right direction. And he really hadn't been given much time, as we said. He was only there for 11 months. And, you know, having joined last September, he really didn't have uh, an opportunity to really, you know, put his stamp on a holiday selling season, which, you know, is so important. Right, right. So what what are they going to do now? Does this mean that they're going to call Lynn Riggio back in from retirement? Or? Well, you know, uh, Mr. Riggio <laughs> had announced in April that he would uh, be retiring for good uh, September 14th, which is the, the next annual meeting. Oh. But he is being uh, brought back to... Uh, at least oversee the company until they can find a replacement. And they didn't put any, you know, timetable on that and when they hope to find somebody new. So, you know, uh, Len could be there for at least, I would think, you know, through, through the fall. So what does this mean for the company? I mean, this is obviously a pretty, this is a pretty big deal and a pretty big shock. Bois, I guess, previously worked at uh, Brookstone. Uh, and he was most recently at uh, Sears Canada. And... You know, publishers are like, in addition to being perplexed and surprised, they're also somewhat annoyed in that, you know, it's been a short, a short time there. Mm -hmm. You know, he put a little while, as any CEO does, putting his team together. And so they seem to be all going in the same direction. Now they're going to have to at least start over a little bit. Any CEO right. is going to need time to get acclimated and maybe, you know, put a couple of different people in different places. So as one CEO told me that, you know, 
he really wants to have being on XPNN executing come the holiday season. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want them, you know, fooling around with, you know, management shuffles and all that. So he, he was quite annoyed. And somebody else just said he was surprised because it seemed to, he seemed to think that, uh, Ron did have a plan in place. Right. And, and, and which made it all the more surprising because, you know, as late as June 23rd, Ron was heading up the, uh, the executive team BNN's presentation and a two hour investor day mm-hmm. in which he and the rest of the, the executive staff laid out the, the future plans for, for BNN. And it wasn't anything radically new, but it had been in line with, um, what he'd been talking about for a while, this omni-channel approach, you know, physical stores, right. which BNN's the largest bookstore chain operator, you know, online through BNN.com, which admittedly still needs a lot of help. But the, the part that really didn't work was for BNN.com was before Ron got there. So right. he, they couldn't you know, hang that on him. And they, they were making some progress on that. And then, of course, the sort of the linchpin to the whole thing was their new four concept stores, the first of which still hasn't opened yet, and it's opening in October. You know, it's not supposed to open until then. And this is one in uh, 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 upstate New York? Or no, not upstate. I'm sorry. Only Westchester. upstate to you people who don't live <laughs> who live in Manhattan. It's in Westchester County, East Eastchester. Yeah. So yeah, but it was. It's by all counts, it's still supposed to open in October. And you know, one of the the linchpins of that is this expanded cafe, uh, which they're you know quite high on, hoping that'll bring in you know more customer traffic and then increase sales throughout the stores. But that has it doesn't seem anything wrong with. The scheduled opening and everybody's known about it for a long time. There didn't seem right. to be any uh, changes there. Although, you know, again, in talking to publishers about, you know, Ron's ouster, you know, a couple of people did bring up like, well, you don't really know much more details about the right. uh, the store. And I mean, by all indications, BNN's going to bring people out there, you know, closer to the opening. And they're also wondering about how how well BNN could take this to other stores. I mean, the cafe is going to be a lot bigger than they have in the traditional stores and have more f- selection of food. And, of course, the thing that all the uh, mainstream media picked up on, selling beer and wine. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know if that rubbed some people the wrong way that, you know, almost every outlet that carried was like kind of poo-pooing it. Like, oh, now Barnes & Noble is saving reading by offering wine. Now, is this Barr's idea? <laughs> Uh, by all accounts, he, he, he was, this was developed under his watch. Right. But, and again, that's, I don't know if he would get sacked for, for something like that one. Right. You know, it's, they were touting it again at the end of June. Yeah. You know, and, you know, um, Barnes and Noble's a public company and the proxy statement came out, you know, at the end of June and he's, was still listed very prominently as a board of directors and, you know, he made eight, over eight million dollars last mm. year. So, and he had a signing bonus. So, you know, everything was going fine until really sort of out of the blue. Um, and we hadn't heard grumblings before this that things were were amiss. No, no. Like we said, everything, you know, he's, he showed up everywhere. Every, yeah. It was no no hints. And, you know, I talked to some of the the heads of some of the bigger publishers, and they had, they had no inkling. They were all caught blindsided. Mm-hmm. So... It really shows you how sudden it is. I mean, in hindsight, 
I mean, something may have happened last week because I was supposed to have lunch with somebody today, mm. being Wednesday, who, right. who rescheduled it to sometime in September. So I don't know if something must have happened last week, but, you know, nobody really has any idea at this point. So unless they already have someone in mind to take over, given the, the, the amount of time it would take to search for a new uh, CEO, then put one in place, uh, we're already going into the big the big fall uh, uh, publication season. Right, sure. Followed by the holidays, uh, the biggest book buying season. I mean, could we assume that maybe Len Rigio will stay at the helm at least through the holidays? Yeah, I would certainly think to make sure everything's in place. Like you said, through the fall, in their very short press release announcing the change, they said, you know, the executive team will stay in place and execute the strategies that they've they've outlined. So, obviously, there's not really time to change anything. And by all accounts, there's no reason to. No reason. There hasn't been, happened, like I said, has been no inkling in the financial numbers that anything was radically wrong. I mean, you look back, I mean, this will be their third CEO in about three years, and the one... William Lynch, who was there the longest, he started in 2010, and he was there when the Nook was a hit. Um, and given how great that was doing, you know, they, they made him CEO of the whole thing. And, you know, he was there for a little over three and a half years, but you could tell why he was going to get fired. Right. <laughs> because after that last holiday season, Nook sales just plunged. Right. And that was it. I mean, the whole Nook ebook strategy just you know through really no fault of their own but just competition from apple and uh, amazon right just folded up and when they announced that he was leaving that that surprised no one right right so this one is a surprise but i imagine we'll be well hopefully hearing more in the coming weeks but may not well the problem is you know again as i think with the irritation that the the publishers expresses Barnes and Noble is really important. Yeah. Um, again, you know, the biggest bricks and mortar, everybody, you know, print is making a rebound and Barnes and Noble is a key part of that. So they certainly want a healthy Barnes and Noble and one that, you know, can execute as this one publisher said, uh, their plans during the, the busy holidays. Yep, exactly. Well, We'll see what happens. Uh, maybe nothing through August, but definitely. <laughs> I'm, sure something will, I'm sure something will emerge somewhere along the right, line. Right. Exactly, exactly what happened. But until then, uh, BNN will soldier on under Len Riggio. And then you'll be back on the show to tell us what happened. I hope so. <laughs> Jim, thanks so much. Always great to have you on. Uh, thank you, Mark. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Gretchen Bakke author of The Grid, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. As I mentioned earlier, you can join us next week for an interview with Jacqueline Woodson, author of Another Brooklyn. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 